Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Good evening, children of the night. Come on in from the snowy air into the warm cabin. We'll have a couple of stories tonight to tell, but first, get situated, get comfortable, and we'll get started. First off, episode 156. I'm taking on more of the role between narration and when the audio actually goes to your earbuds or speakers, and I had a bit of a pooch screw on this one. So, here's another mea culpa from me. The complete and fixed episode is available on our website if you haven't found it. The link will be on the show notes for your convenience. Our first story of the night comes from Ahisma Kirp. Ahisma is a language mercenary and spec-fic writer who is fond of rambling hikes, craft beer, and tofu tacos. Originally from the Pacific Northwest, he has lived on four continents and is currently traveling and teaching in Asia. The story is one that I really liked, despite being filled with hippies. I hope you like it as well. Turning on, tuning in, and dropping out at the Mountains of Madness by His McCurp. You're such a drag, you just need to split, Euphoria told him. She had just been woken up and felt really spaced out. She moved her hand to slide the van's door closed, but his body blocked her. Tim had found her napping and had come in uninvited. He knew she didn't like it when people came into her bus without her blessing. Mellow out, Yuffie, please, he pleaded. His voice was whiny, as it always was when he wanted something. Don't be like this, we were good together. Tim was lean and lanky. He wore, as always, grungy jeans and a battered leather vest, complete with raggedy fringes on the sleeves. His chest was otherwise bare and mostly hairless. Good together? she asked. That just wasn't true. 
She'd never liked him. She had just shacked up with him when she got to town because he had good weed. They dated for two or three weeks and then she stopped seeing him. The message should have been clear enough. Since when? You were being a major square man. You will get bad karma. Now flake off. My friends are coming over, she said. Fine, I'll split. You never treated me right anyway. Tim's eyes grew crafty. I have new friends now. I don't need you. I'll go, but I want my star back. The star he referred to was a beautiful rock she wore on a hemp necklace. It looked volcanic, but was heavier than pumice and not as purely black as obsidian. Tim said it was from the Soviet Union and had come from outer space in the forties. He thought it looked like the sun when he was stoned, with squiggly rays of light ringing the bottom half of the sphere. Euphoria had always thought it looked like an octopus. There was no way she was giving it back to him. That was my birthday present. What's your bag, man? Don't be an LBJ. Tim's eyes flashed anger. I want that fucking star back, Yuffie. I only gave it to you because I thought you would steal it if I didn't. She was surprised. She, in fact, had been planning on stealing it. But she didn't know that he had known. Truth be told, stealing pretty things was kind of a problem for her. Euphoria looked around at her microbus. It was in pretty good condition, considering the long drive from Iowa. But it hadn't been cleaned for a while. Scarves, bracelets, rings, and her rags covered the floor. Her bed was still out, and some macrame needles and pins she had borrowed in Kansas City were scattered all over the place. It was a mess, and there was no way she was going to look for the necklace right now. Not for him. Tim, I don't even know where it is. Now is not a good time. My friends are coming over. It never is euphoria, Tim said. His voice was strange and he came further into the van. His eyes were wild and bloodshot. Fear crawled lightly up her neck. Tim was a peaceful man, but something had changed. He suddenly felt dangerous. Hey, a voice called from outside. Reinforcements. She nearly melted with relief. Outside stood a man and a woman, some of her best friends. One of them was the big Indian guy everyone called Lazy Horse. He didn't ever say much of anything, and he was always smiling, but he was also really big. Her friend Diane stood next to him. Tim glared at her. This isn't over, he hissed. He jumped out of the van, nodded to the duo, and strode off. Euphoria followed him out, closing the sliding door to the Volkswagen with a satisfying thud. Tim, she called. As he half turned around, she raised her middle finger in the sky. Climb it, Tarzan. As he turned away, scowling, she realized she had been wearing the necklace the entire time. Trippy. Euphoria turned to her friends. Am I glad to see you guys? He was really wigging out. Square, Diane sang. Lazy Horse didn't say anything. He just smiled at her. He was nice but Diane was the coolest person Euphoria had ever met. She looked just like Twiggy, only shorter. She was always dressed in the best threads, too. Today she wore a suede miniskirt with a groovy chain belt, a French polo necktop, and square-toed boots. She often wore a beret, but today she had a rose in her hair. Euphoria didn't know how it stayed there. Whenever she tried the same look, the damn flower always fell out. Instead, she was wearing a beaded headband that Lazy Horse had given her. That with a billowing blouse, no bra and some embroidered jeans 
made her feel like she'd pass for someone more hip than herself if no one looked too closely. She was no fashion star like Diane, but her breasts were bigger and her hair longer. They'd met a month ago, the day Euphoria had arrived in Ashland and they'd hit it off immediately. Diane was from Portland and was new to Ashland as well. She said she had made up the Let's Make Love Not War slogan three years ago, back in 65 at an anti-war rally in Eugene. That was majorly bitchin' if it were true, and if it wasn't, it was another sign that Diane was more fearless than Euphoria would ever be. What are you doing right now? Diane asked, but didn't wait for an answer. Coming out to Lithia Park. It's really happening today. All the freaks are there. Who knows, you might meet a nice guy. Diane, Euphoria said, scandalized. I am not on the make, okay? She wondered if that was true. She'd been with Tim a few times, true, but he'd never really scratched that itch. That's okay. You might find something you like. I don't have any bread, Euphoria said. Me either. You can get the five-finger discount, though. And maybe I'll just show them my tits. Euphoria laughed and then realized that her friend wasn't kidding. Ashland was a town of college students and their moneyed parents, filled with duck ponds, hiking trails, wild blackberries, and plenty of culture like art exhibits and free theater. Mount Ashland frowned in the sky above the town, and lesser hills flowed by like water. Towards the Pacific, to the west, rolling oaks covered the foothills. And at the epicenter of all was Lithia Park, where the free people gathered. Euphoria looked out at a sea of color as pinks, blues, yellows, and greens walked by. It was a world of bell-bottoms, tie-dye, ankle fringes, flower patches, beads, bandanas, buckskin vests, flowing caftans, Mexican peasant blouses, gypsy-style skirts, altar tops, and granny glasses. Far out, Euphoria said. It was just her and Diane. Lazy Horse had gone off looking for dinner. She was focusing on a beaded peace sign belt buckle. Next to it were a series of Smokey the Bear stickers. The big brown creature was smoking a joint, holding the jay delicately with his enormous beer paws. While the vendor was talking to a couple of guys playing frisbee, Euphoria slipped a couple of stickers into her purse. Diane tisked softly. Euphoria ignored her. What was a girl with no money supposed to do? Her karma was generally still pretty good. The vendor turned to them. I love this place, she said to Diane covering. It's not like Iowa. She didn't miss the place she'd grown up, but occasionally she wondered about calling her parents. Her father's birthday had been last month. Iowa. Huh. The guy selling the sticker said. I'm from Akron, same shit, sister. Yeah, it's a real scene. Diane agreed. She seemed bored. Right on, the guy said. Hey, you two got a guru? There's a new dude in town and he's way far out. He can tell prophecies, that kind of shit. He's camping here in the park. The soul brother? Diane sounded surprised. I, uh, yeah, I know him. Sounds like fun, Euphoria said. She needed some guidance in her life. Let's beat feet. It took them almost two hours to find the camp. They had to wade through the creek, walk up through a forest, and pass something that looked like a giant hamster wheel. Once they were close, though, they could hear the drums beating and smell the smoke of the bonfire. The sun had set, 
and the summer sky was filled with waning, streaming light. There were already twenty or thirty people. Lots were getting high, some were playing drums, and plenty were just chilling out. There he is, Diane said. She didn't need to say it, though. He stood out. Lithe and swarthy, he stood by the fire but was wrapped in darkness. Shadows wreathed languidly about his body. His face was dark except for his eyes, which shone with an awful, joyous light. He wore camouflage fatigues in a combat vest with lots of pockets, with black leather sandals on his feet. His beard was curly and neatly trimmed. On his head was an almost rectangular headpiece that immediately made Euphoria think of an Egyptian pharaoh. He clutched an elongated ivory flute. The instrument appeared to be made from a hollow reed or a bone, bleached white, with several finger holes along the shaft. The man was very beautiful. Look at that dude, Euphoria whispered to Diane. He is seriously far out. As they watched him, he lifted his flute into the air and played. The sound filled the air. It was fey, wild music that may have lasted seconds or hours. It transcended beauty and spoke directly to the soul. It was all over too quickly. The world itself seemed to have changed, to have been destroyed and clumsily rebuilt in an instant. Her heart was beating fast and her head seemed to be swimming. She found herself approaching him. He looked at her. His smile was smoldering, but cruel. Where are you from, man? she asked. Hard to say, he answered. His voice was low and gruff. My name is Euphoria. What's yours? She pressed her breasts into him, slightly, as she leaned in to talk to him. I have many names. You can call me Nyarlathotep. That's a trippy name. Are you, you know, from Egypt? I've been there, amongst other places. Like where? He paused. It might be easier to tell you where I haven't been. I have looked on sites which others saw not. You've been to Kathmandu, Kabul, Benares, Ceylon? He interrupted her. That's not the kind of traveling I do. Think more... celestial. She understood all right. She wondered if she could bag some acid off of him. Do you want to get out of here? He asked her. There was no mistaking what his invitation entailed. She was thrilled at his directness. She glanced over to Diane, who was chatting with a guy who looked like Jesus. When she saw Euphoria, she nodded. Go, she mouthed. When Nialathotep took his vest off, Yuffie gasped. Hanging on a dull metallic thread was a stone like the one Tim had given her. Instead of an octopus, however, this one was wide and triangular, like a pyramid. Far out, she said. They were in a house that boarded the park. It was nice, like one that her parents might own. But Nyarlathotep walked in as though it belonged to him. It wasn't empty. There were a few other couples and lovers in various states of intercourse. But to her relief, they were in a private room. She wasn't ready for orgies just yet. His hands were around her, and her shirt was over her head and on the floor before she knew it. He leaned in and lightly licked her right nipple. She felt a flood of warmth fill her. Then she giggled as his beard tickled her breast. Something was wrong. He had stopped and was staring strangely at her breasts. Is everything okay? 
she asked. This necklace, where did you get it? He wasn't looking at her breasts at all. From the cosmos, man, she said. She really didn't want to talk about her ex right now. I know of this. I didn't realize how important it was. His hand was before her, and it flexed as though he was suppressing some deeply hidden emotion. Never mind. We have an entire night before us, he said. His mouth moved to her other nipple and surrounded it with a soft, wet kiss. Her jeans were off then, and she was lying in his bed as he filled her from above. It was like being high, but somehow so much more. She was screaming, having lost total control of her inhibitions and feelings. At the end, as he pumped his essence into her, she felt she was watching herself, a disconnected observer of her own pleasure. She awoke to the sound of knocking. Nyalatotip slid out of bed and, fully nude, flowed to the door. His erection hadn't subsided while they had slept. I've been looking all night. I can't find it, the voice from outside said. The man sounded whiny. No, she thought. Impossible, not here. Never mind, Nialatotep's deep voice answered. I don't need you any more. Never mind. That's a real drag, man. I just spent hours. Tim? Euphoria asked. She knew it had to be. What are you doing here? Tim stepped into the door so that he could see the bed. When he saw her, his face collapsed. Like it was melting. Then it was replaced by a mask of rage. What the fuck, asshole? He half screamed at Nialatotep. You told me if I got the necklace, I'd get her back. You didn't get the necklace, the dark man said. He moved to close the door. Fuck you, man. Tim swung a fist at Nialatotep's face. Moving faster than humanly possible, Nialatotep caught his fist with his left hand. He squeezed and a horrible crunching sound filled the room. Even in the dark, Euphoria could see red pulp oozing out of Nyarlathotep's fist. Tim screamed for a half-instant, but almost instantly passed out from the pain. His body crumpled to the floor. Euphoria was out of bed. She, too, was naked, and her nipples were hard in the cool night air. I think I'll be going now. She was panicked, out of control. Her hands reached for her clothes as she tried not to look at the door. She felt him behind her, that most terrible phantasm of the night. You mortals always amuse me, he said. His voice was soft. You work so hard for your miserable survival. Why fight for such drivel? What do you want from me? she asked. Her voice quavered. She knew she was going to die and thought suddenly of her parents and felt sad that she hadn't talked to them for so long. Not much more than I've already gotten, he leered at her. He was so beautiful yet so masculine, she thought, that even now she half feared him, half craved him. But I'd really like your jewelry. He reached out his long, slender hand. Her fingers were too shaky to try and untie the knot. She slipped the star over her head and gently placed it on his palm. Just so, he said. I will be back. There's never been a better time to be a messiah. But for now, I must go. He waits for no one. Wait, she asked suddenly. He turned and looked at her. Her knees shook. He seemed on the verge of destroying her. Can I, can I get one more kiss? Nialatotep smiled a huge glowing smile. 
his teeth shone. You were energetic, much more so than your friend Diane. I can reward you, yes. He leaned down, grabbing the back of her head while his lips pressed to hers. Diane? She wondered, then forgot. Her hands, much more still now, were clasped around his neck as her body flushed once more with desire. She moaned as his tongue slipped into her mouth. Her fingers worked busily, and then her left hand clenched. He half-dropped her, stepped away, and then, surrounded by a thousand stars, he disappeared. She pulled on her blouse and jeans and followed him. She stepped over Tim in his bloody hand. That's karma for you. Nialatotep was gone, and the revelers were all asleep. She walked out into the street and smiled. She opened her hand and examined the contents. Not a bad trade, she thought. The pyramid wasn't as cool as the octopus, maybe. But the new chain was cool and she had a groovy story now. Best of all, she had a pretty good idea of what she wanted to do with it. Once it was morning, she needed to find Diane and say goodbye. It was time to get out of Ashland. The sunshine of California would be nice. But it might be better to cruise up the I-5, head to Yellowstone, and then back out to Iowa. After all, she had one hell of a late birthday present for her father. That was a Hisma Kerps turning on, tuning in, and dropping out at the Mountains of Madness, as read to us by Nicolette Doolin. Nicolette writes fiction, poetry, and plays. Her work has appeared in the Wilderness House Literary Review, 3AM Magazine, 365 Tomorrow's Flash Shot, and the literary anthology Wilderness House Literary Review, the best of Volume 3. Additionally, her stage plays have been presented in festivals. Nicolette is also a voice actor who has performed for various mediums and produces a podcast called Audio Literature Odyssey, in which she narrates classic literature. Visit the Audio Literature Odyssey site for more information and listen to some excellent stories. Link will be in the show notes. Our second story of the night will be Harry Shannon's Handful of Dust. Harry is no stranger in these parts. We've heard a few of his excellent stories from time to time. Harry Shannon has been a singer, an actor, an Emmy-nominated songwriter, a recording artist in Europe, a music publisher, a VP of Carol Co. Pictures. Uh, you'll know them from Terminator 2, Total Recall, and, of course, Rambo. And worked as a freelance music supervisor on films such as Basic Instinct and Universal Soldier. He has an M.A. in psychology and has been a paraprofessional counselor since 1988. Many of his clients work in the entertainment industry. Although primarily a novelist, Harry has contributed short stories and novellas to a number of genre magazines and anthologies, including the highly praised Dark Delicacies 2, Limbus 2, Brimstone Turnpike, Tales from the Gore Zone, Small Bites, the Journal Stone Double Down series, A Dark and Deadly Valley, and On Deadly Ground, a collection of Western noir co-edited by veteran authors Ed Gorman and Dave Zeltzman. His definitive collection, A Host of Shadows, is now available on Kindle. Mr. Shannon's novels include the Mick Callahan suspense series as well as Clan, Demon, Dead and Gone, The Hungry, Zombie Books, and... All the Devils, co-written with Stephen W. Booth, and the well-reviewed thriller The Pressure of Darkness. He won the Tombstone Award for Best Novel with Clan and a Dark Scribble from Dark Scribe Magazine. 
His story, Night Nurse, and fiction collection, A Host of Shadows, were each nominated for a Stoker Award by the Horror Writers Association. Otto Penzler selected 50 Minutes, co-written with Joe Donnelly of Slake Magazine, for inclusion in the Best American Mystery Stories of 2011. Harry scripted the film version of the camp horror novel Dead and Gone, produced and directed by Yossi Sasson, and played a bit part as the sheriff. The film was released on DVD via Lionsgate in 2008. Harry Shannon continues to write fiction and music. He sees clients by appointment only at a discreet office located in Studio City, California. He is married and has one child. And now, Harry Shannon's Handful of Dust. Pike had short brown hair, speckled with gray. He wore blue Armani with a salmon tie. He rode down in the elevator alone, well after midnight, rolling a lightweight suitcase behind, crossed the loud, garishly furnished lobby and casino, bought a copy of the New York Times, and carried it to a back table. He sat behind a potted plant and ate mozzarella with fresh tomatoes and a side of Canadian bacon. After two espressos and a cold bottle of mineral water from France, Pike called the valet to order up a brand-new rented Mustang ragtop that had been charged to a fraudulent credit card. He tipped the sleepy car hop appropriately without once meeting his eyes. Pike drove away. He paused at the mouth of the driveway in the neon glare of the massive pyramid-shaped casino and put some of his favorite music on the CD player, Hans Bieber's melancholy Die Rosary Sonaten. He waited for some drunken tourists to pass, flipped on his headlights. He cruised down the strip to the freeway entrance and headed northeast. Later, when the highway forked, Pike took the back road, a little-known ribbon of cracked asphalt that paralleled the main highway up to Elko and then Dry Wells. The desert night was chill, and the indigo sky freckled with winking stars. Pike knew his way around Nevada, but wasn't terribly fond of the state. To him, the high desert was merely a cratered landscape littered with pale fists of bleached tumbleweed, devoid of charm and empty as the surface of the moon. Pike checked his platinum Rolex, activated the radar scanner, and drove as fast as he dared. After four listens, he changed to Bibber's heartbreaking Requiem, but eventually even that familiar work began to grate on him. Pike tried to find a radio station, but he was already too far from civilization. He opted to avoid satellite systems for security reasons. He drove on in silence, mind empty and handsome face bland. Before dawn, when the rising sun would smear red and orange chalk along the rocky peaks, Pike reached the city limits. To his left, in his headlights, stood a weather-beaten metal sign, chains squeaking in a light breeze, announcing historic dry wells. Pike sniffed with disdain. In the dark, the battered wooden storefronts looked like some abandoned movie set. The cracked windows were streaked with dust. Many were broken. This part of town seemed deserted. Pike went to the right, past a closed gas station and liquor store, until he saw the small neon sign that read, Taps. He parked out of sight, 
around the side, next to a dented white pickup truck, and got out for a stretch. A man in a black cowboy shirt sat in the cab, lighting what smelled like a decent cigar. He never looked up. Pike strolled to the front of the ramshack building, past a bug zapper that was doing brisk business. He looked around, carefully, before entering through a squeaking pair of old wooden bat-wing doors. Taps was furnished with card tables and folding chairs. A small geriatric television set was mounted on the far wall. Despite the hour, it was tuned to a sports network, and the sound was muted. Pike looked around, searching for surprise customers or hiding places. He found none, and, as promised, there seemed only one way in or out. Evening, Tap, Pike ventured. He waved one hand in the air. The bartender, a white-haired old-timer with long white hair in a ponytail who'd been paid to stay open all night, wore a ripped tie-dye wife-beater T-shirt and blue overalls. He was festooned with fading tattoos and sat clipping his toenails with grim resolve. His feet were filthy. He squinted at his handiwork before replying, Want a beer? Do you have anything German? Tap squinted shook his head. Just the Coors. Want one or not? Pike nodded, enunciated carefully. That would be nice. He walked closer, annoyed that his new Gucci shoes were already coated with sawdust. The bar itself was made of long plywood sheeting, nailed to a couple of sawhorses. Pike took the cold bottle of beer and backed away. He chose a table that would allow him to keep an eye on both the owner and the front door took an unopened pack of cigarettes from his jacket and set it on the table. The desert night looked like a velvet drape. Insects droned. Pike was on his second beer when the yellow headlights splashed the dirty windows. Someone else was arriving. The engine sounded small, maybe Japanese. Pike glanced outside. The driver waited quite a while before stepping out into the graveled driveway under the street lamp. He approached the door heavily, like a man on the way to the gallows. Pike reached around under his shirt to adjust the small nine-millimeter fire star seated in the holster at the small of his back. The batwing doors opened with a horror-film creak. From the voice on the phone, Pike half-expected Mr. Smith to be a jumpy little weasel. Pike was somewhat surprised to see a stocky, pleasant-looking, balding businessman, perhaps 50 years old. Smith stepped into the room. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And did a pathetic job of acting casual. He smiled, asked for a can of soda. Tap was still occupied with his toenails. He looked up and offered a beer instead. Moments later, Smith brought the unopened bottle to the table. Pike moved the pack of cigarettes to one side. Mind if I sit down? Smith's voice was higher than one would expect and broke on the last syllable. I've been driving all night. That was definitely the voice Pike had heard on the phone. Smith swallowed nervously and positioned himself with his back to the room, another clear sign of an amateur. His eyes were pink spiderwebs. Have you read anything by James Michener? Only the source. You should really read Hawaii, then. I don't get much time to read these days. With a look, Pike pinned Smith to the chair, lowered his voice. Now that we have that nonsense out of the way, why don't you tell me why you dragged me up here to this godforsaken part of the country in the middle of the night? Ah, Smith swallowed again, Adam's apple bobbing. You chose the time and place, sir. I know that, Pike sighed. I just don't want to go through all this for nothing. Now tell me who it is and why. Why? Smith seemed surprised. I didn't think you cared. I don't. Except if I don't know everything, there may be some surprises that pop up along the way and put me in danger. You look like a businessman. I'm sure you can understand that. Certainly, Smith said. Of course. He glanced back at the indifferent, now dozing bartender. Are you sure it's safe to talk in here? Don't worry. Old Tap is nearly deaf. He's also bought and paid for. Are you satisfied you can trust me, sir? Of course, Mr. Smith. Pike leaned forward. After all, Reggie himself vouched for you. His elbows shifted the table, and his empty beer bottle clanged against the ashtray. So just briefly fill me in. The wife? Excuse me? It's usually the wife. No, Smith said. He leaned closer. His eyes seemed glassy. He was perspiring heavily, and his breath smelled like cinnamon breath mints. It's a business associate, actually. I'm trying to close the deal of a lifetime, and he's in the way. Do you have any special requirements? Smith cocked his head, bemused. I don't understand. For example, does it matter to you if he suffers first? No. Smith blanched and shook his head rapidly. No, it doesn't matter at all. Okay, good, Pike said. That keeps things simple. A long silence followed. The bug zapper on the porch snapped and crackled like distant thunder. Mr. Smith wiped his brow. It's really hot in here. Pike sipped his beer without answering, and Smith got the hint. Okay, one question. How will you do it? Pike shrugged. That all depends. An accident is best. Maybe we cut his brake line before a trip, or arrange for a burglar to break in and shoot him. 
Sometimes I set up a fatal heart attack. You can do that? For the right amount of money, Mr. Smith, I can do anything. Can I ask you a question? I'd rather you didn't. Indulge me for a second, Mr. Smith said, ignoring Pike's response. He had abruptly stopped sweating, and his eyes were no longer shining. How does someone get into your line of work? You don't need to know that. Perhaps, but I'd like an answer anyway. Pike decided to give him two more minutes. If you know Reggie, then you know the Russians have moved into L.A. I started running errands for them maybe ten years ago. I made myself useful and let them know I was a team player. A chance came along and I took it. You eliminated someone they found troublesome? Obviously. Were you scared that first time? A burst of laughter, short and low as a lion's cough. I don't scare very easy, Mr. Smith. If I did, I'd find myself another line of work. I'll accept that, but does it ever bother you? For some reason, the question, routine and somewhat expected, made Pike feel unusually uncomfortable. Not really, Mr. Smith. It's just a job to me. I'm a professional. You enjoy it, then? I suppose you could say that. Okay, then, Smith lowered his voice even further. I'll return to the subject of fear. Do you ever take pleasure in making other people feel afraid, Mr. Pike? I need to see the color of your money, Pike said briskly. I'm sorry I have offended you. Not really, but this has already taken too long. You do. I knew you would. Do what? Take pleasure in it. Smith reached into his jacket, removed a thick packet wrapped in brown paper and twine. He held Pike's eyes as he pried one end open, thumbed through the $100 bills. He set the money down on the table. Half in advance, just the way Reggie said I should do it. Pike took the money without counting it and tucked it into his coat pocket. Now give me the name and address, Mr. Smith, and we're both out of here. Fear is nothing more than adrenaline racing through the body. Smith looked down in a way, as if he'd just discovered something hiding on the sawdust floor. His voice went hollow. And yet there is something about it that fascinates. Don't you agree? We have Halloween, Day of the Dead, horror films, books. All manner of murder mysteries and thrillers are always on the bestseller lists and doing well at the box office. For most of my childhood, I avoided fear like the plague. Oh, I went on a roller coaster once. It was rather delicious, though I did wet myself. This guy's demented, Pike thought. He leaned back in his chair. Mr. Smith, this is all too fascinating, but time is money. Smith seemed not to hear him. My abusive stepfather introduced me to hunting when I was a teenager. He was a nasty, cruel person. Told my mother it would make a man of me. How cliché! Anyway, that frightened me too at first, but eventually I got quite used to it. Killing, Pike said, is something of an acquired taste. Not everyone enjoys it. Smith nodded, and his mouth went thin. I never did, to be honest. Oh, I came to quite like the hunt itself, but never the death. Mister Smith, I need that name. Smith looked up, and his eyes were suddenly wide with excitement. What if I changed my mind, Mister Pike? What if I said I really wanted that man to suffer? What could you do to him? Pike shrugged. We could maybe cut him up first, smash his toes. 
Let him hurt a while and then torch his house while he's still breathing. If the fire burns hot enough, no one would ever need to know how he died. How would you prove it to me, what you did? I could make a video if you like, Pike yawned, or just tape the sound if you don't think you could sit through watching. Isn't that risky? Once you've checked it out, I'll destroy it so there's no evidence. Of course, of course. Is there anything else you could suggest? Smith rubbed his palms together like a pervert at a peep show. To make it bad, really bad. Yes, if I wanted to make it all very nasty, Pike yawned. We could burn his skin with drain cleaner. See, what you do is you explain it all up front and then take him out bit by bit, even make him swallow some at the end. Oh, God, that is truly horrific. Yes. And the target is always aware of what is going to come next. I guess that must endanger the deepest fear of all. It gets their attention. Then that's what I want. Fine, Mr. Smith, Pike said briskly. He checked his watch. There's just one little problem. I have the deposit, but I still need the man's name. Smith chuckled. He looked over his shoulder to make sure Tap was not paying attention. Mr. Pike, I have a confession to make. I have brought you here under what might be considered false pretenses. Excuse me? Well, I'm still going to hire you in a manner of speaking, but not in quite the way you'd imagined. Pike let his hand creep back toward the nine-millimeter fire star in his belt. What exactly do you mean? Well, the real reason I brought you here is because of my long obsession with fear. Smith drank deeply from his beer, belched politely behind one hand. As I said, it started when I was a child and has continued to this very day. So when a friend of mine died under somewhat mysterious circumstances and a professional hit was suspected, I decided to find out who'd done the job. Pike tensed, gripped his weapon. You're here because I did a friend of yours in? Not exactly, Mr. Pike. Please relax. William wasn't a friend, actually, although I was quite close to his wife, Jane. Very close, if you know what I mean. She was quite relieved to have him out of the way. In any event, it took me several weeks to retrace all the steps, but eventually they led me to our mutual acquaintance, Reggie. Smith saw Pike's eyes narrow. He held up his right hand, palm empty and asking for peace. Please don't be alarmed. Look, I must say that what you do for a living absolutely fascinates me. Pike showed him the gun. You're on real thin ice here. I know, I know, Smith said weakly. I just want to discuss something with you. You can keep the money. You paid me thirty large just to talk. You must be a very rich man. Oh, I am, Smith said. But I didn't go to all that trouble just to talk. First, you must understand one fact. I have recently learned that I am terminally ill. It is a rare form of cancer, quite lethal. Oh, the pain is quite manageable with drugs, and, and I assure you that I have at least six months, so I'm certainly not asking for your pity. What the hell are you asking me for, then? Well, I actually came to turn the tables. As it were, now that I know who you are and what you look like, my intention is to stalk you, Mr. Pike. Pike laughed. What? 
As already mentioned, I have hunted in my time, but never the most dangerous game of all. Never man. I would like to experience that before I'm gone. Okay, let me get this straight. You plan to hunt and kill me? Just so. Pike sneered, shivered. Oh, I'm so scared. I know it sounds foolish at this point, Smith said. "'but I do want you to feel those waves of intense dread "'and forbidding you have so frequently inflicted upon others, "'at least once in your life. "'It seems only fair.' "'Pike set his gun sideways on the table in plain view. "'He kept his finger on the trigger. "'Like I said a few minutes ago, "'Old Tap is pretty much deaf, "'and he's nodding off over there. "'He's also bought and paid for, "'so whatever happens next,' He won't be talking to the cops about it. Smith smiled. You forget that I have finally come to quite enjoy the sensation of fear, Mr. Pike. I hope for your sake that this is Reggie's idea of a practical joke. I'm sorry, Smith pursed his lips. Regretfully, our friend Reggie is dead. I shot him through the right eye with a twenty-two automatic. I have read in mystery novels that the shells rattle around better in the skull that way. "'You're nuts.' "'Perhaps I am,' Smith winked, lewdly. "'Hey, don't worry. I came here unarmed, just as I promised.' Pike stared, and then took out his cell phone with his free hand, hit auto-dial, waited. His stomach felt sour. After three rings, Reggie answered. "'Yeah?' Pike felt relieved. "'Reggie, it's me, Pike.' I can't talk right now, Reggie said briskly. Call me later. The line disconnected. Pike folded his cell phone and clipped it back on his belt. He considered the man before him. Meanwhile, Smith rubbed his temples like a man with a headache coming on. When he looked up, his expression was again timid and uncertain, like a man recovering from a hallucination. Pike grimaced with frustration. Smith was clearly a full-on psychotic. Let's take a walk. Please, no, Smith whimpered, shook his head. He looked pale. He kept his hands in plain sight. I don't want to go outside. You're really something, Pike said admiringly. You're probably a fruit loop, but I have to admit, you've got guts. Do you know Elliot? Elliot who? T.S. Thomas Stern's Elliot, Mr. Pike. Have you read him? Some, Pike said. He was now honestly baffled. Mr. Smith closed his eyes and recited from memory. His tenor voice was clear and resonant and brought the poem alive. You know only a heap of broken images where the sun beats and the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no sound of water. Only there is shadow under this red rock. Come in under the shadow of this red rock, and I will show you something different from either your shadow at morning striding behind you, or your shadow at evening rising to meet you. Smith opened his eyes. I will show you fear in a handful of dust. Pike leaned down closer to the pack of smokes he'd placed on the table. Willie, we're on the way out. He tucked the pack into his coat. Smith blinked. He looked around the room as if bewildered. Who are you talking to? Pike glanced at Tap who had clearly fallen asleep. He aimed the gun at Smith's head, but did not pull the trigger. He abruptly reached across the table, seized Smith by the thumb, and painfully turned his wrist. 
The smaller man yelped and got to his feet, following Pike's lead. Ouch, that hurts. Keep it down, or I'll do you right here and now. Ow! Pike wrist-walked Smith to the door. The fire star pointed down at the floor. He poked his head outside. There was no traffic on the highway, although he could see a pair of headlights in the distance, coming closer. He yanked Smith close and whispered in his ear, You've stepped in it now, buddy. Please, Smith gasped. It was a joke. I already said you can keep the money. Just don't hurt me, okay? The reddened eyes had gone glassy now. He's definitely on some kind of heavy medication. What were you thinking, pal? I only wanted to see what a real hitman was like before I died, that's all. I really am sick. It was just a bad joke. I made up all the rest of it on the spot, just to see what you'd do. You're a lion sack of... Pike grabbed him through the bat-wing doors and down the dusty wooden steps. The desert night was cool and crisp, and huge stars speckled a deep blue sky. No, I really wasn't lying about being sick, just about the rest of it. I've been under psychiatric care, and they say I'm getting better. Pike released his wrist, kicked the seat of his pants. Smith was visibly trembling now. He began to sob. He stumbled around the side of taps and closer to the pickup truck parked in the darkness. When he saw the broad-shouldered cowboy standing next to it, holding a tire iron, he cried out again, God, please don't kill me! Pike kicked him again. Did you think I'd be here alone? Willie's worked with me for years. He's got enough equipment in that truck to block any signal but our own, and enough firepower to take on the National Guard. So this is the big man, Willie uncrossed his massive arms. He's moving around a lot. You want I should kneecap him first? Pike briefly considered the idea, but shook his head. Wait a second, Willie. He walked back down the gravel driveway and peered into the night. The headlights up the road were almost upon them. Pike called out, Lose the tire iron. We got company. Something clattered into a pile of trash at the back of the building. Willie puffed on his cigar again, the orange tip showering sparks. For a long moment, Smith's pale and terrified face was visible, like a reflection of the full moon. Pike saw the rack on the top of the highway patrol car, and his stomach tightened. "'Stand him up, Willie,' he said softly, "'and pour some booze on him in case we need to knock him out.' Pike slipped the nine-millimeter in the back of his belt and walked back toward the porch. The patrol car pulled into the driveway, spraying gravel. Faint but incessant radio chatter flooded the air. After a long moment, a bucolic-looking young officer with short red hair and a gut slipped out of the driver's door. He stood so the vehicle remained between them and nodded. "'How y'all doing tonight?' "'Just fine, officer,' Pike said pleasantly. "'I was about to drive away when I remembered I hadn't paid my tab.' "'Tap okay in there?' "'You know Tap,' Pike paused in the doorway and grinned. "'He was sleeping two minutes ago.' "'Hang on there a second, the young cop said. "'Stay where you are.' He left the engine running and walked around the front of the car, hand on the butt of his Glock. His shadow spread a pool of ink on the cracked plaster wall. Pike froze, but subtly left his own fingers crab-walk back toward his own gun.
The cop trudged up the steps. He shined his flashlight in Pike's face. Blinded, Pike flinched and looked away. What's your name, friend? Gavin Hollenbeck, Pike replied, using the name on his fake driver's license and bogus credit card. What are you doing out here, Mr. Hollenbeck? Just passing through on my way down to Vegas to have some fun. You calling us about a broken-down car? No, I sure didn't. Maybe old Tap did it, then? If he did, he didn't say anything to me about it, officer. The cop peered over the top of the batwing doors. Pike considered dropping him on the spot. One quick shot to the back of the head, but before he could go for the Firestar, the kid had changed position again. He turned off the flashlight. Tap sleeping, all right. How much you owe him? Pike opened his wallet and produced a ten-dollar bill. Couple of beers and a tip, that's all. Someone coughed by the side of the building. The cop stiffened and flicked the flashlight back on. Who's that, Mr. Hollerbeck? Pike took a deep breath. I don't know, just a couple of guys standing around having a beer. I'd expect one of them has a big old cigar and Tap doesn't like smoke, right? The cop took two steps, froze. I thought you said you were just passing through, Mr. Hollenbeck. You know old Tap? I'm just passing through, Pike covered, and gently produced a pack of smokes. He just said to go outside that I couldn't light up. You there, the cop called. The cop was tense again. His hand was back on his Glock. Come on out in the light where I can see you. Pike let himself drift back to the batwing doors. He wanted to be able to duck inside if he needed cover. Smith came over first, looking washed out and disheveled. His hands were shaking, and he now stank of whiskey. Willie appeared behind him, half in the gloom. Pike signaled with his eyes for Willie to keep calm until Pike could decide what to do. The cop looked Smith up and down and chuckled. What's your story? The chastened Mr. Smith eyed the scene and shrugged. He clearly didn't want to get caught in a shootout. I only had a couple of drinks, officer, he said. He belched and his face sagged. I wasn't feeling too good anyway, and after that I really got really sick. The cop stepped a couple of feet to his right, widening the distance. His eyes focused. Who's that with you? Who? Smith covered perfectly. Oh, he's just somebody who was helping me out. Man, the poor guy comes outside here for a peaceful smoke, and I suddenly show up and start barfing. The silence mounted. The cop was clearly suspicious. One in the temple. Hide the body out back. Pike came within inches of firing, but suddenly the patrolman relaxed. Can you drive? Smith nodded a bit too enthusiastically and dug out his keys. Sure can. Then uh, get on your way, the cop said. Beat it. Damn. Pike and Willie watched helplessly as Smith jogged to a rented Pinto, slipped in, and started the engine. He backed out onto the highway and vanished into the night. The cop strolled back to his patrol car. You two gentlemen have a nice night. Pike clenched his teeth. You too, officer. And Mr. Hollenbeck? It took Pike a second to respond to the name. Uh, yes, sir. Don't you forget to give old Tap that ten bucks, okay? The cop peeled out, and the night went silent, except for the sawing of crickets down near the creek bed. Willie walked a little closer, boots crunching in the gravel. He seemed worried. 
What do you want me to do, boss? Should I try to catch up to that crazy little prick? Maybe. Pike's pulse was still racing. He considered it for a long beat. Finally sighed. No, let him go for now. We can track him down through Reggie when we get back home. Man, that dude had one strange idea of a fun evening. No kidding, Willie. And you can bet I'm going to have a long talk with Reggie about this. You believe the nerve of some people? Pike barked a laugh. Nerve is right. We've sure got to give him that. He cracked his neck and hitched up his trousers. Wait here. I need to use the john. Inside, Tap was face down on the bar, snoring. Pike went into the single restroom, which stank of urine and disinfectant. He did his business, washed his hands. He blew out some breath and looked at himself in the cracked mirror. His eyes were clear. He raised his hand and held it out, palm flat. He was not trembling. Gratified, Pike smiled at himself, splashed water on his face, and went back out into the sawdust-filled room. Tap had apparently gone to bed. The bar was empty. Pike flipped his cell phone open and hit redial. Yeah? God damn it, Reggie. Right now, call me later. Hello? Puzzled, Pike dialed again. The same thing happened. Pike scowled. Reggie's answering machine was programmed to say, Yeah, I can't talk right now. Call me later. After that, it would disconnect. Pike sat down slowly in a folding chair. He dialed another number. Jake, it's me. Don't say anything. Have you seen Reggie tonight? The color left his face. No, I'm just asking. He closed the phone, got unsteadily to his feet. Willie? No answer. Pike kicked the chair out of the way and strode outside. Willie, where the hell are you? He took out his fire star and slid down the wall, weapon raised. Somehow he knew what he would find. Willie was behind the wheel of the truck with a tiny hole in his head and his chest wet and dark. The tires had been slashed. The keys were missing. Pike jogged over to his rented Mustang, also certain what he'd find. The distributor cap was missing, and wires had been pulled. Pike screamed at the stars. Bastard! A thrumming insect flew past his ear. Something bit him. Pike growled and felt the side of his head. A small, fleshy part of his cheek was bleeding. He rolled across the wooden steps and down into the shadows beneath the porch. Another puff of dirt exploded near his legs, and this time he heard the faint echo of the shot. Smith! God damn you! Pike broke and ran, in a crossing pattern, through the sand and the skeletons of dead sage. He scrambled down into a gully, his heart thudding in his chest. He knew he'd never make it out of dry wells, not wearing these expensive shoes. Another shot, a ricochet off a nearby flat rock that whined into the hard-packed dirt. God, he's got a night scope! Pike went for the cell phone again, started to dial 911. Suddenly, the phone and the tips of three fingers disappeared in a spray of blood freckled with shards of plastic and bone. Pike screamed like a woman dying in childbirth, ran as fast as he could, on and on through a vivid desert night that seemed to last forever. For the very first time, he came to know the fear in a handful of dust. That was Harry Shannon's Handful of Dust, as read to us by Pete Falico. 
As a teenager, Pete wanted nothing more than to become a full-time disc jockey. His dad wanted him to become an educator instead. Studying the human voice in college seemed a happy medium, and a 36-year career as a speech therapist ensued. Helping people communicate during the day while playing jazz recordings at night on a local radio station soon became a comfortable compromise. Pete began programming jazz on the radio in the San Francisco and Monterey Bay areas in 1975. His efforts have been heard on radio stations KKUP, KPEN, KUSP, KRML, and KCSM. His show was initially called Doodlin, after the Horace Silver classic, but it soon evolved into the Doodlin Lounge, where fantasy prevailed and emphasis was placed on blue note recording artist and hard bop grooves. Shows like these and others are now podcasts that are heard from Pete's website. He is one of the hosts of Evening Jazz on KCSM and Bay Area's jazz station KCSM. Along with his radio broadcasts and home studio podcasts, Pete has been involved in the voiceover business since 1985. He has been the voice of many Silicon Valley software companies as well as the narrator for numerous documentaries. Pete is the founder and executive director of a non-profit organization called the Jazz Organ Fellowship and the owner of his own record label, Doodlin Records. Links will be in the show notes. And that will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Take care of each other and come see us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. Have you ever Googled your own name? Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is all out there. It's all harvested by data brokers and sold legally. Aura is a personal digital security service that scans the internet for your sensitive information and provides a full suite of privacy-enhancing tools. For a limited time, Aura is offering listeners a 14-day free trial at Aura.com slash safety. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash safety to learn more and activate the 14-day trial period. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.